I'm okay if the Spirit wants to lead me in calm waters. But troubled waters? Some of you may know the name Adoram Judson. He was an American missionary. <clears throat> he went to Burma, now Myanmar, in 1812. He died there 38 years later in 1850. And during that time, he suffered incredibly for the cause of the gospel. He was imprisoned and he was tortured. He was kept in shackles much of the time that he was imprisoned. And he suffered the, the loss of, of his wife, Anne. For several months, he was so depressed that he sat daily beside her tomb. Three years later, he wrote, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I cannot find him. But his faith, God's grace sustained him and threw himself into the task to which he believed God had called him, and that was the translation of the scriptures. And by 1834, he had finished translating both the Old and the New Testament into the Burmese language. When he died, the facts aren't certain, but there's an estimate that there may have been somewhere between a dozen and 25 believers scattered around the countryside. Fast forward to the mid-1980s at the 150th anniversary of the translation of that Bible into the Burmese language. There was a pastor by the name of Paul Borthwick. He served at Grace Chapel in the North Shore of Boston. He was addressing a group that was actually celebrating Judson's work. And in the Bible that he was holding, he noticed in small print on the first page the words translated by Reverend A. Judson. And so Borthwick turned to his interpreter, who was a Burmese man by the name of Matthew Wynne, and, and he asked him, he said, Matthew, what do you know of this man? Borthwick says that Matthew's eyes filled with tears as he said, we know him. We know how he loved the Burmese people, how he suffered the gospel for the gospel, just because of us, and, and out of love for us, he died, you know, a pauper. But he left the Bible for us. When he died, there were few believers. But today, and this was spoken by this man back in the, the mid-80s, but today, there are over 600,000 of us, and every single one of us, traces our spiritual heritage to one man, Adoniram Judson. Wow. I read that and I have such mixed emotions. There's that sense of, wow, what a thrill to know that, that the gospel caught fire and it, and it blazed through that country and, and, and hundreds of thousands of people became followers of Jesus. By the way, did you know that the couple who cleans our church, T and Ta, they are from Myanmar, formerly Burma. 
They're members of the Karen people. They would be two of those who would trace their spiritual ancestry back to Adoniram Judson. But I have to be honest and say that I feel this sense of sadness too when I read that story for for, for Adoniram Judson, for the man, that the life he lived in Burma was so hard. He experienced great pain and, and loss, and, and he never got to see the results of his faithful labor. And he's just one example among thousands through the ages who have done the same. So, let me ask you, Was it worth it? Was it worth all of his labor and his sacrifice? What do you think? Absolutely. So, who among us is ready to be the next Adoniram Judson? Are you? Am I? Are we willing to sacrifice for the sake of Christ, the cause of the gospel? Are we willing to sacrifice maybe a little, maybe a whole lot, maybe somewhere in between? I have to tell you, this was such a troubling week. The sermon has made me miserable. And it is not my goal to share my misery this morning. But I am troubled for my own life. The shoe fits, you can put it on. In terms of my understanding of this Romans 12 text that we have chosen as sort of the the home stretch as we move toward the end of this sermon series. We started, you remember, in Romans 8 and Ephesians 3, and, and, and we spent time there learning, trying to understand, wrap our heads around the amazing love of God, the unconditional love of God, the, the, the love of God that, 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 that reaches out and, and grabs lost people and, and makes them His children. The love of God that does that, not because anybody is owed that, but because that is who God is. And you remember we included in our reading last week the doxology at the end of chapter 11. I hope that you may have gone home and spent some time reading that this week. The amazing truth of God's grace that humanity, as Paul unfolded it for the first 11 chapters of the letter to the Romans, Humanity had rejected God. There was no one who really sought after God or seemed to care about Him. That rejection is sin and affront to His holiness. And what God in His love chooses to do in response to that is to send His Son to die on the cross as an atonement for our sin, for our rejection of Him, thus satisfying His own righteous standard and Jesus' death and resurrection then makes salvation, Paul says, available through faith in Christ to both Jews and Gentiles. He is amazed 
And he is in awe, and, and we all need to be amazed and in awe as well. So, so allow Paul's amazement and, and those, those words of truth to sort of uh, be the lens or the filter through which we read these familiar words. Let's stand and uh, read once again first few verses of Romans chapter 12. Together. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. That's our challenge for this morning, brothers and sisters. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Last Sunday, we, we made a note of Paul's use of the word bodies as a way to focus upon our actions. The idea that living sacrifices are bodies in action. The person who is committed to, to being a living sacrifice for God's glory, well, if that really happens, they demonstrate that in the life that they live. Their actions, their decisions will have a note of sacrifice about them for the sake of Christ. Paul, and we said, is not suggesting that it's a one-time commitment or even a, even a weekly Sunday thing. Paul is driving at a lifestyle. That's the language. A living sacrifice every day, every moment, that is thoughtful and intentional about living on the altar of sacrifice for the sake of God and His glory. As I said last Sunday, that this is kind of the, the turning point for us. It's, it's time to apply what, what we have learned, hopefully, about God's amazing and undeserved love so that we can live our lives as if we really do believe what we say we believe. That's where the imagine comes in. Imagine, what would your life look like if you really were living in a way that demonstrates that you truly believe, not just cognitively, cognitively but it, is, it has penetrated your, your heart and emotions and your being, and it is having an impact for you and for me upon the way that we live. What will my life look like if I live like I really believe that God loves me the way that we have learned from Romans 8 and Ephesians 3? What will my life look like if I really believe that he loves me the way that the scripture teaches that he loves me? The answer is, it will look like a living sacrifice. What will your life look like if you really live what you believe, what you say you believe about how God loves you and, and how 
we've learned together that he loves you. You know what your life will look like? A living sacrifice. And when we live our lives together as his people, if we really live together what we say we believe, guess what our lives are going to look like? Yeah. Living sacrifice. And I'm here to tell you this morning that there is just no greater challenge than this. Because we tend to think of sacrifice as doing. We, we hear stories like Judson and, and, and our minds go there. It's like, oh my gosh, what a sacrifice. Could I do that? Lord, I don't want to do that. The idea of doing that scares me to death. We, we, we take these maybe quantum leaps in, in, our, in our minds of what that sacrifice is going to look like and, and, and think in terms of doing or, or, or actions. I think that the greatest challenge is more a response to the truth of who God is and how He loves us and a life of surrender. Before we go a little bit further with that, I, I, I feel like I need to say something that, that it, it really seemed clear to me that the Spirit was pressing on me this week, sort of a, a clarifying word of, of, of caution. <clears throat> As we consider the implications of what it means to, to live as a sacrifice for God, a living sacrifice. We, we have to keep in mind Paul's enthusiasm over the mercy and the goodness of God as the motivation for offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's why the doxology at the end of chapter 11 is so important and why it's tied by that word, therefore, you know, Paul is just taken with the greatness of God and the wonder of His mercy and His grace. And that God would bring this gift of salvation by faith in His Son to all, all who are willing to put their trust and their faith in Him. Paul says, that is amazing. Therefore, God has done this unimaginable thing. Therefore, in view of that, Paul says, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And here's the reason that I say that. We've got to keep the amazing grace of God in clear view because living sacrifices, I'm convinced, are motivated out of a sense of awe and gratitude, not out of a sense of duty. <clears throat> and so... I think the word of caution is this. Be careful not to make living as a sacrifice about serving God. Probably sounds a little weird. <clears throat> but as I, as I thought and prayed about that more this week, it just, it, for me it just became so clear. Be careful not to make living as a sacrifice about serving God. We... We talk that way a lot as believers. I talk that way. You know, I'm living my life as a servant of God. Now, obviously, there, 
There's biblical reason that we say that. But go with my thinking in this text for just a couple of moments here. First, Paul says, here's a couple of reasons. Paul, the, the language of the text doesn't support that idea. Paul is using the word here, urge. I urge you, brothers and sisters. It's a word that's, that's often used in the New Testament to mean, literally, uh, in, in other situations, begging or pleading. Paul is not pulling his apostolic trump card here. Paul is not speaking this in a way that elicits a sense of duty or obligation or or I have to. Paul is urging and pleading with the readers of his letter. He's not commanding. He's not saying, do this period since God did this for you. You owe him. Just do it. That's just not the sense of the language. Now, the Spirit could have inspired Paul to write it that way. But he didn't. And I'm suspicious that he didn't because that, at least in our minds, can quickly and easily turn our response to God's mercy into duty. Okay. God has done this. Now I have to pay up. Let's be clear. In reality, we do owe God. We owe Him everything. But some of us owe taxes too. And we hate that. It's a duty. We have to pay taxes. It's our duty. Paul Paul is appealing here to the redeemed heart. To the heart that has the Spirit of God living within it. Again, don't forget the doxology. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. If we think of this as a call to duty, then I think we need to examine our hearts. We need to seek the Spirit. To ask Him to reveal to us What's the hang-up? I think that if we're willing to do that, we will find that it, that it has much to do with, with doubt. It has much to do with fear. So much the theme of, of, of our songs this morning. Doubt that God really loves us all that much. Doubt that He really is trustworthy no matter the circumstances that we, that we find ourselves in. So it becomes a question, I think, of why do I feel I must do this as opposed to something that, that I want to do in response to His mercy and His love for me. That's kind of where I've been living my life this week. And I think there's, a, there's another reason that we need to be cautious about our, our thinking of serving God. And that is really quite simply, God doesn't need our service. You know, we think in terms of, of serving others and helping to meet needs that they might have. That, that, that's, that's very appropriate. That is following after the, the life of Jesus. But God, He has no needs. He doesn't need us for anything. But here's the stunner. He wants us. 
He wants us to live in relationship with him. And he desires our worship. But he does not need anything. I think it's important for us to remember that. If you've heard the songs, the song by uh, Phillips, Craig, and Dean, You Are God Alone, I love the words, you are not a God created by human hands. You are not a God dependent on any mortal. You are not a God in need of anything that we can give. And by your plan, that's just the way it is. God did not save us because he needs us. He did not save us to do anything. God saved us because he loves us. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have been given the opportunity to live in the relationship of intimacy that we were created for. The relationship that was lost because of our sin. Some of you are familiar with the, uh, the Westminster, Westminster Shorter Catechism. That great question. What is the chief end of man? Sorry, it's old language. What is the chief end of humanity? What is the chief end? You know it? Yeah. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That doesn't sound like duty to me. You know, there's not necessarily enjoyment in duty. But there is great enjoyment in relationship. To glorify God is what being a living sacrifice is all about. So we need to shift away from that thinking of we're doing this as duty, as service unto the Almighty. We need to shift away from that thinking that that somehow God needs us to do something and, and move into that mode of God wants us to enjoy Him. God wants us to live in intimate relationship with Him. And I think that when we live in that kind of relationship that is generated and empowered and motivated by His Spirit living in us, that results in great glory to God. That results in life that looks a whole lot like a living sacrifice. Now, we've talked about what it means to glorify God in the past. And you know that from some of the Old Testament, the Hebrew language, it hints at the idea of of giving God his proper place. Some of the oldest language, it's the idea of of God's size, sort of the the weightiness of God, the bigness of God, and, and, and the presence of God. And so let me ask you this morning, where is God's rightful place? Where does God belong? Anybody, just shout it out. On the throne. In my heart, in in terms of the world that we live in, where does God belong? Doug, everywhere. God belongs everywhere. That's the idea of giving God glory is to affirm his right as creator to be everywhere. The greatest challenge I think that we face as living sacrifices, 
calling attention to the glory of God in his rightful place everywhere and in everything is that we struggle to really take ourselves off of that throne and put him there. Do you notice we read uh, verse 3 this morning and added that to our reading from last week. Karen, can we put that up? Paul says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Then out of that flows our neighbor question. What do you think Paul is concerned about with those words? Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment. What's Paul's concern here as he writes to the, to the Roman believers? Go ahead and talk to your neighbor for just a minute. What's he concerned about? Why, does he, why do you think he says that? What do you think? Some feedback. What's your neighbor think? What do you think Paul's concern is? Pride. Good, good. What else? Okay, yeah. We need to walk humbly with our God. From Micah the prophet. Doug. Aha. Let's, uh, let's, let's talk more about that. Jim, you wanted to add something. It can be easy to slide that way, I think. Especially, you know, when we're comparing ourselves to someone else. Gee, I'm, I'm not nearly as bad as that person. Okay. And Paul says, by the grace given to me, this is what I say to you. Exactly. I think it's safe to say that Paul at least in some part of his thinking, has the Roman society in mind, as, as Doug was referring to. A very distinct class that existed in, in that society. There were, there were the haves and there were the have-nots, the rich and the poor. You know, a, a huge slave population that, uh, that served their masters. And his exhortation to them is to not think more highly of themselves than they should a literal translation of that would be more highly than is proper. So then we ask the question, proper by whose standard? The answer? God's standard, exactly. The one who has shown you great mercy when you did not have to. So instead, think of yourselves, Alfredo, with sober judgment. Those words in the original language carry the meaning to be of sound mind, to be in one's right mind to exercise self-control, to put a moderate estimate upon oneself. Think of oneself soberly. In other words, don't think like crazy people. That's my somewhat loose translation. And I think it does tie back to what Paul said about no longer conforming to the pattern of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul is saying that followers of Jesus think differently. They think with God's mercy in view. They think about themselves and others with God's mercy in view. To be thinking too much of ourselves in light of what God has done for us in Christ makes a mockery of what God has done for us. Okay? Obviously, that was a potential problem in Rome, and that's why Paul speaks to that. 
But we could read in his letter to the church in Corinth where he also addressed the opposite problem. We might say that the Romans had potential for having the superiority complex. Well, in Corinth, there was potential for some to have an inferior complex, thinking too little of themselves. That as well is a mockery of what God has done for us in Christ. Before salvation in Christ, think of this, we were lost in our bondage to sin. Theologically speaking, there are no levels of lostness. Okay? There are no degrees of difficulty for God. You know, God didn't look down at Karen and say, piece of cake, and then look down at Dale and say, I don't know how I'm going to get him saved. You know, it... <laughs> God doesn't think that way. There are no levels of, of difficulty, no degrees of difficulty, okay? So, lost is lost. That's profound. Take that with you. Lost is lost. We had nothing that convinced God of our worth. We were lost. That's before Christ. After faith in Christ, we are redeemed. We are adopted into his family. We have become children of the Heavenly Father. And there is nothing to boast about now because why? We were lost. Paul says, no one was seeking God. He sought after them. Lost is lost. And by the way, God has no favorites. As much as I think he probably likes me better than some of you, that's not true. You think the same thing, so don't think ill of me. Okay? So let me just take this and, and tweak it real quickly here in uh, the last few minutes that we have. The greatest challenge that I think you and I face to being faithful and consistent in being living sacrifices is not whether we think too much or even too little of ourselves. The problem is that we think about ourselves too much. Do you get that? The problem isn't whether we think too much or too little. The problem is, is we simply think about ourselves too much. The emphasis you remember in this text is upon our bodies, offering our bodies, our actions. Who, who, who are we as a result of what God has done? This, my friends, this is not a call to duty. This is not a call to responsibility. This is not a call to pay our taxes. This is, a, this is a call to respond to the loving, gracious character of God made known to us through the sacrifice of His Son. And he's talking about our daily living selves, how we think of ourselves, how often we think of ourselves, how we act, the decisions that we make, how we treat people, what we do with our time and our resources, until we have come back to the starting point of surrender, saying, God, my life is yours. Spirit of the living God, you who indwell me, fill me in such a way that the fear in my life is driven out because fear is what so often determines the decisions that I make. Whether I'm going to love someone or not is based on how I perceive they will receive my love. Whether I'm going to be generous with, say, my money with a certain person or not, it's based on what I think they're going to do with my money. Whether I'm willing to give someone of my time or not 
well, that just depends on how important my time is. Are you with me? The greatest challenge that we have as living sacrifices is that we spend way too much time thinking about ourselves. Living sacrifices. It means that we're alive. And sacrifice always means giving up something. It means being open to the possibility of pain, of disappointment, of, of going without. It means sacrifice. It means surrender. Praise team, why don't you come on up and, and let me just finish as you're coming. I want to be mindful of our, of our time together. Campus Crusade for many years, and maybe they still do, have, have that little track that talks about the throne in our hearts. You've seen that picture? There is a throne in each of our hearts. And you have a choice of who sits on that throne. Either you sit on that throne or you step aside and you let God sit on that throne. I used to think that was the dumbest illustration I'd ever seen. It's really profound. It is really profound. Because throne means ruler. Lee said, where does God belong? On throne. Well, he is on the throne of his universe. He is over his world. It is the throne of the human heart. It is the battlefield. And the Spirit of God who comes in and indwells us gives us the outrageous ability to surrender control of the throne. And once in a while I, I do that and, and, and then I, I want to consult the king and, and tell him that I, that I have some good ideas. I want, to, I want to ask the king if he's sure that that was really a good decision. I want to... I want to talk with the king and make sure that he knows just how, how important this sacrifice is to me. Daily decisions and actions. I'm just astounded these days as the Spirit has been hitting me upside the head with this. How much I think about myself. I am my favorite person. And you are your favorite person, so don't get haughty on me. The, <laughs> the goal, the goal that we're pushing toward in these last couple of Sundays together is to look at specific ways that we yield control in the face of fear, in the face of danger, in the face of, oh my goodness, what if you call me to some place that I don't want to go? But living sacrifices have yielded control and have given the throne over to someone new. Father, I feel like I am in deep water here because I don't live faithfully when I am challenging your people to this morning. We need to think less of ourselves. We need to begin every day 
with a prayer of surrender every day, thanking you for another day, for life, for breath, and surrendering ourselves to your work in us. Lord God, would you help us to figure out how that works? in the midst of our lives, in the midst of a culture that is so busy and so demanding and so antithetical to to the values of your kingdom and the surrender that Paul urges us to in response to your mercy. Help us to grasp that and to begin to live that faithfully, we pray. In the name of Christ. Christ.